Let us pray. So, Father, we do ask that you would help us to trust you more and more each day. For, Lord, our hope is in you and you alone. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's so good to see all of you this morning. Um, I've been sick this week. I'm, I'm feeling about 80%. I'm not contagious, just FYI. Um, I've had a strep test and two home COVID tests and a COVID test at patient first. I'm really okay, but my voice um, is not, not anywhere close to 100% yet. So thanks to Father Jed for um, covering everything in, except for the sermon first service and Deacon Julian Father Jed for covering all the speaking parts second service except for uh, the sermon. I do want to mention and make sure everyone um, knows, whether, even if you're first time here today, we are having a reception to honor Stephen Desiree Barker um, av- immediately after this service in the atrium. And um, we've got some special guests here today to recognize them, especially Ashley, their daughter. Thanks for being here, Ashley. And um, even though you're stealing them away, <laughs> or your sons are stealing them away, probably, but... No, we're very happy, but you guys are going to be missed. Um, so at the end of the service before the dismissal, Father Jeb will ask the blessing on the food, and then we'll have a time of fellowship as well as some um, folks sharing to honor Stephen Desiree. Well, today we're continuing our study of the Beatitudes. So I'd invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them or grab a Bible under the pew if there's one near you and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Remember, as you turn there, the setting for all of this, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Jesus is speaking primarily to his disciples, but as Scripture records, large crowds gathered around them. So even though this teaching is directed to followers of Jesus, um, the larger crowds heard what was being said as well. Matthew 5, 7, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Like righteousness that we looked at last Sunday, mercy is another one of those words or concepts from Scripture, which we hear used with some regularity, often without thinking about its definition, about what it it really means. I think it's critical as we begin today that we look at mercy and how it is both described and depicted in Scripture. Because sometimes I think we blend the concepts of mercy and grace together and their meanings become blurred. Yes, they are closely related, but they're not exactly the same thing. I've heard the distinction between mercy and grace very simply stated this way, and I think there's some validity in this. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. But we need to go a little bit further than that distinction or definition today. D.A. Carson in his wonderful book on the Sermon on the Mount says, um, defines grace this way. Grace is a loving response when love is undeserved. Very much in line with the description I gave just a few minutes, a few seconds ago, actually. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. But then there's mercy. When we look at the Bible, we really see two different but related aspects of mercy. First, we see the idea or the truth of pardon extended or given to someone who is in the wrong. And this is really the idea of not getting what we do deserve. 
We see this kind of mercy in God's dealing with Old Testament Israel. Think of the example of when the Israelites made the golden calf. Moses came down off the mountain and in his anger broke the tablets containing the Ten Commandments. And then we read this in Exodus 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a good, merciful, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then the prophet in Isaiah 55 writes, Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon we see in the heart of God pardon extended or given to someone who is in the wrong. The second aspect of mercy we see in Scripture is kindness shown to someone in need. And this is demonstrated throughout Scripture as well. In, in Leviticus chapter 19 we read, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harv your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. What we see here is God instructing his people to, to show mercy and to show compassion to those in need by allowing what falls to the ground on the edges of the field to remain there. If you remember the book of Ruth in Ruth chapter 2, this is how Ruth met Boaz. Ruth and Naomi were needy, and Ruth had gone out to the fields to gather around the edges, those portions, what they called gleaning, those portions of the crops that were not harvested. And when she approached the part of the field that was owned by Boaz, that's how they met. We also see this kind of mercy shown in the feeding of the 4,000 in Matthew 15, where we read, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. We see Jesus out of compassion and mercy caring for the physical needs of the crowd. So as we look at Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy there are three, three, three key truths I think we need to understand and focus on today in order for us to live out this teaching of Jesus. And the first truth is this. Mercy begins with God. Let me repeat that. Mercy begins with God. Mercy, being merciful, is an attribute of God. It's not just something God does or something God shows, but it is a part of who he is. It is an integral part of his nature. It flows from the essence of God's being. And as I've already mentioned, we see this mercy that flows from God's heart, from his being in his dealings with his people. Psalm 78 tells us, they remembered that God was their rock. The most high was their redeemer but they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he 
being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. Just reading the words of that psalm really refute the erroneous idea that you hear people perpetuate at times that somehow God's character is different in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. You'll hear people sometimes quite erroneously assert that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy and grace. First of all, let's be clear, God's character, his essential being does not change. And secondly, they haven't read the Old Testament because if you look at, at, the, um, at God's dealings with his Old Testament people, oh my goodness, if it is not a story of mercy and grace and, and patience and loving kindness time and time and time and time again. And, and in Daniel 9, 9, the Old Testament makes it very clear to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him. So why was God so patient and merciful with Israel time and time and time again? Well, I think Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 31 gives us some insight in this regard. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So why was God merciful? first, as we've already talked about, because it is a part of his character. It is one of his attributes. And second, because God is a covenant-keeping God. When God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, we are reminded that God swore by himself. Hebrews 6.13 mentions this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So what we see here is that God repeatedly extends mercy to his people because he will not violate his character. He is a God full of loving kindness toward us. God is compassionate. He is faithful even when his people, including you and me, are faithless. He is a covenant-keeping God. That means that God keeps his promises. He does what he says he will do. And brothers and sisters, you and I can count on that. Not that that is a license to go out and engage in ungodly activity, but that should build us up. That should encourage us because we serve and have been redeemed by a God who is full of grace and mercy and compassion. But God doesn't just show his mercy to his people in the Old Testament. He shows it repeatedly throughout human time and history. And what was the most powerful demonstration of the fact that God is merciful? The most eloquent expression of his mercy? It is his son, Jesus Christ, God's son. St. Paul reminds us in Titus chapter 3, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the, of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. All of those promises of God in the Old Testament that God would not violate because he swore by himself, 
they ultimately pointed to Jesus and preserved the people and bloodline through whom Jesus, God's salvation, would come into the world. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, shows us what the mercy of God looks like in human flesh and blood. Think of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Or Jesus healing the blind man in Matthew 9 who cried out to Jesus as he was passing by, have mercy on us, son of David. And the most single powerful demonstration of God's mercy in Jesus is that he willingly, did you hear that he willingly laid down his life on the cross for you and for me? While we were still, yet, still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. As recorded in Luke 23, even while on the cross with the two thieves, Jesus demonstrates his incredible mercy. All of this because of God's love. All of this because of God's mercy. Because God is a faithful, covenant-keeping God, a God who keeps his promises. Mercy, brothers and sisters, begins with God and it flows from his very being. God is merciful in the fact that he has demonstrated this to us and his son Jesus brings us to our second point, which is this. Mercy is God's mandate for the Christian. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In making this statement, Jesus is clear. He's saying that believers are blessed. And you and I are only enabled to show mercy because we already know and have experienced God's mercy as a reality in our own lives. And hear this. Don't miss this. We demonstrate mercy in proportion to our recognition and gratefulness for God's mercy which we have received and which we know as a reality in our lives. Let me repeat that because you don't want to miss this. We demonstrate mercy in proportion to our recognition and gratefulness for the mercy God has shown us, the mercy we've received and which we know as a reality in our lives. The late Pastor Tim Keller in his book entitled Forgive tells the story of a gang member, Hashim Garrett, who learned the art of forgiveness. And I've actually worked when I was doing trauma chaplaincy with a number of young men who very much um, sound like Hashim. He was 15 years old, living with his mother and hanging out on the streets in Brooklyn where he involved with a gang. He ended up being shot six times and left, was left paralyzed from the waist down. For the next year, Hashim lay in a New York City hospital fantasizing about revenge. He later, later wrote, revenge consumed me. All I could think about was just wait till I get better. Just wait till I see this kid. But when he was lying on the sidewalk immediately after his shooting, he had instinctively called out to God for help. And to his surprise, he felt this strange tranquility. Now during his rehabilitation, a new thought struck him. Namely, that if he took revenge on this kid, why should God not pay him back for all of his sins? He concluded, I shot a kid for no reason except that a friend told me to do it and I wanted to prove how tough I was. Six months later, I am shot by somebody because his friend told him to do it to me. That thought was electrifying. 
He could not feel, feel superior to the perpetrator. They were both fellow sinners who deserved punishment and who needed forgiveness. Hashim said, in the end, I decided to forgive. I felt that God had saved my life for a reason and that I had better fulfill that purpose. And I knew I could never go back out there and harm someone. I was done with that mindset and the life that goes with it. I came to see that I had to let go and I had to stop hating. If we really know and desire to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior, we must be growing in our demonstration of mercy. Yes, mercy is identified in Romans 12. It is a spiritual gift. And that means that some believers are especially used by God and gifted in this way. However, hear me, that does not exempt any of us. None of us. Because God requires that we live out the same quality of mercy which he extends to us. It's a command, Luke 6.36 tells us, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And hear this, just like I said a few minutes ago, listen again. To not be merciful demonstrates a total lack of understanding, not of others, but of ourselves. Did you hear that? To not be merciful demonstrates a total lack of understanding, not of others, but a lack of understanding of ourselves. Because it shows that we haven't yet fully grasped our own need for mercy, our need for mercy from God and our need for mercy from other people. And it means that we've refused to come to grips with our own sin and brokenness and neediness. As believers, we must come to grips with our need for mercy. We understand our spiritual bankruptcy, that we are poor in spirit, Matthew 5, 3, and it is God who makes us rich through his grace working in us in Christ Jesus. We are sorry. There is mourning for our sin and the sin all around us, Matthew 5, 4. And we hunger and thirst for righteousness, God's righteousness, because we know that we have none of our own apart from God. And because we've come to grasp these biblical realities, because we have an honest assessment of ourselves and the incredible mercy God has extended to each of us, despite our unworthiness, and we realize that we are blessed. We are blessed recipients of, recipients of God's incredible mercy. And because of this blessing, despite our own neediness and unworthiness, we are quick to extend this same God-given mercy to others. Did you hear that? When we understand who we are and the mercy that we have been blessed by, the mercy that's been poured out on us by God, then we are quick to extend that same God-given mercy to others. And the fact is, brothers and sisters, if we're seeking to follow Christ, it is not an option. It is one mark of a true Christian, someone who personally knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Again, to quote D.A. Carson, I'm going to do a little sales plug here. I highly recommend his book on the Sermon on the Mount to any of you. It is a superb, superb book. It's been out for about 20 years. But Carson says this. It is sometimes said that an alcoholic who won't admit he's an alcoholic hates all other alcoholics. Similarly, it is generally true that the sinner who won't face up to his sin hates all other sinners. 
but the person who has recognized his own helplessness and wretchedness is grateful for whatever mercy is shown him, and he learns to be merciful toward others. Mercy is God's mandate for us as Christians. And then third and finally, mercy, godly mercy is costly. Yes, we've received mercy because of our own neediness. When we extend mercy to someone, it is because of need. Whatever form that need may take, spiritual, physical, emotional. But godly mercy, brothers and sisters, is marked by generosity. It is marked by compassion, even on identification with another person's need and suffering. Think about it. This is what Jesus did. He, he dined with tax collectors and sinners. And he wasn't interested in sinners because of their merits, but because of the misery they were in. Godly mercy expects nothing in return. But it will cost us time, money, physical and emotional energy. And it can also cost us respect and dignity as the world defines it, even as it did for our Lord. Because mercy sometimes is viewed as compromise, or it's viewed as weakness, because you're allowing, or we're allowing ourselves to be a doormat. We're allowing someone to walk all over us. We're allowing ourselves from the world's perspective to be taken advantage of, rather than lashing out and taking what is ours and standing up for what is ours. But the fact is, brothers and sisters, acting in godly mercy requires incredible godly strength. And showing mercy means being in the trenches. It means getting our hands dirty because of our love for God and our love for people because we love people as God loves them. And because we are keenly aware that it is exactly what Jesus did for us. Something he has done for us in a way that is beyond comprehension. We show mercy because Jesus commands it and he has demonstrated it to us. In the account of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25, which I'm not going to read, think of the truly right, who the truly righteous reach out to and touch with Jesus' love and mercy the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, those needing clothes, the sick, those in prison. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, writing on this verse and speaking of the merciful, says this. They have an irresistible love for the lowly, the sick, for those who are in misery, for those who are demeaned and abused, and for those who suffer injustice and are rejected, for everyone in pain and anxiety. They seek out all those who have fallen into sin and guilt. No need is too great. No sin is too dreadful for mercy to reach. The merciful give their own honor to those who have fallen into shame and take that shame unto themselves. They may be found in the company of tax collectors and sinners and willingly bear the shame of their fellowship. Disciples give away anyone's greatest possession, their own dignity and honor, and they show mercy. 
they know only one dignity and honor, the mercy of their Lord, which is their only source of life. That's a challenging word. Do we have that kind of God-breathed, irresistible love? Am I, are you prepared to follow the example of our Lord and extend mercy to the most debased, wretched person you might be able to think of? How do we respond to the downtrodden? Is our response one of gentleness? How do I respond to the backslidden Christian, to the brother or sister who has fallen into sin? Do I show, do you show godly compassion or do we show impatience and harshness with the fallen? When our new bishop was consecrated earlier this year, there was one charge that the archbishop gives the new bishop in his consecration that really jumped out at me. And I want to read these words from the Book of Common Prayer in the order of service for the ordination and consecration of a bishop. Be to the flock of Christ a shepherd, not a wolf. Feed them, do not devour them. Hold up the weak, heal the sick, bind up the broken, bring back the lapsed, and seek the lost. Do not confuse mercy with indifference. So minister discipline that you forget not mercy. When we hear this list of things that a bishop is charged with, really that apply to all of us in one level in our lives as Christians, there's no place for self or pride in a right and godly attitude in any of these areas. There is only place as we understand ourselves in light of Jesus and what he's done for us for an honest recognition of the mercy that we, that we have received. Mercy, not as a religious duty or some act of self-righteousness, but because of Jesus and because of his love and mercy in our lives. We are called, brothers and sisters, to demonstrate and to live out by God's grace and power in us the mercy of God to the broken and the hurting and the needy and those caught in bondage to sin and the fallen brother or sister. And we are to reach out with the mercy of God, that same kind of mercy that Jesus shows us every day. This church all of us together must be an outpost of the mercy of God in this community to reach out to those who are pushed to the margins, to those society has forgotten about, to reach out to those ensnared in sin that in a lot of cases even other Christians may have written off. God is calling us to reach out to them and to show them his mercy, the grace and mercy and transformation that he has brought to pass and continues to bring to pass in our lives so they can be a reality for them as well. One of my very favorite hymns is And Can It Be by Charles Wesley. I was thinking driving over here this morning as I was reflecting on my sermon driving to the church early this morning. Um, I like the Wesleys. There's no secret about that. I quote John Wesley pretty regularly in my sermons, but it dawned on me that pretty much Almost every one of my favorite hymns is a Charles Wesley hymn. Um, but this one was actually sung at my priest ordination. And you may not be familiar with it, but and can it be that I should gain 
written by Charles Wesley. And I want to write, read for you the second verse because I think it really brings to closure everything we're talking about this morning. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let us pray. Father, we begin by recognizing afresh the mercy that you have poured out in our lives, that you have shed abroad in our hearts through Jesus Christ. I want to invite you, just take a moment in your own way, silently or aloud, and thank God for the mercy he's shown you in your life and me in my life. Just do that with me if you will. Father, thank you that we don't get from you what we deserve. Lord, fill our hearts with gratefulness. Fill our hearts and lives with your presence that we would show that mercy to those around us, to the needy, to the fallen, to the broken, to those ensnared in darkness and sin and demonic powers. Lord, fill our hearts with your compassion, with the eyes of Jesus. And Lord, empower and lead us to reach out to them and not to be concerned about the world, what the world may say or the world may think. But may all of our desire be to reflect Jesus accurately, to be his hands extended, to see people helped, to see people lifted up by your gracious transforming power and set free. Lord, do that in us as we recognize how incredibly blessed we are because of your mercy. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.